Well, um, we're in Psalm 103, and uh, let me simply say this. Uh, uh, Psalm 103 comes connected to four other psalms, and they trace the mercy of the Lord all the way from creation to the Babylonian exile. And one of the things that's nice if you get to read through them is to remember that this story doesn't end with the Babylonian exile, right? If those psalmists had benefits to praise the Lord for, we have even more, right? Messiah has now come. The Holy Spirit has been given in greater measure. Uh, the New Testament Scriptures have been completed, and with, Re- with the book of Revelation, we know how the story ends, uh, and we're now awaiting Christ's return. And so, they're wonderful psalms of thanksgiving and praise. We're just going to look at Psalm 103 today. But as the psalm lists the benefits of knowing the Lord and having a restored relationship with the Lord, what it actually does is it addresses the problem that we have with giving thanks because of all the brokenness in the world we see. One of the reasons it can be so hard for us to give thanks, and it's a legitimate reason, is because we all suffer from a Genesis 3 hangover, right? We all live on the other side of the curse of sin. Uh, There is brokenness around us, and if we're honest, there's brokenness in us. And uh, whether we're having a moment of honesty about what's in our own hearts or the brokenness in our own families, or we turn on the news and see the brokenness that's in the world, there's a lot to get us down. And it can be so bad that you can begin to think, well, maybe the only way I can feel thankful is to ignore all the bad stuff, shut my eyes to the reality of what's happening in the world, and think some positive thoughts, and then maybe then I could feel thankful. But this psalm actually teaches the opposite. David isn't encouraging you to close your eyes. Just the opposite. He's encouraging you to open your eyes to the reality of how, God, how good God has already been to you. That's what the list of God's benefits does. It opens your eyes to the benefits you've already received from the Lord, and let's be candid about it. They are benefits that our souls tend to forget or take for granted or undervalue, and that's why we need to focus on them and look at them. Now, I think it's instructive that before David goes to list God's benefits, He has to exhort his soul uh, with some self-talk. Actually, he has to exhort his soul with some self-exhortation. Look again at verse 1. David says, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name.'" So that sets the tone for the entire psalm. David is speaking to his own soul, and he gives his soul the command to bless the Lord. But what does that mean? Bless is not necessarily clear in English. When we ask God to bless us, I think, I think it's obvious to us what's going on. There's some tangible benefit or good that we're asking for God to give us, right? But what does it mean for us to bless God? It's not like we have gifts we could give Him that He would need. Well, in Hebrew, this word we translate bless is a synonym, a synonym and closely related to praise and thanksgiving. In fact, if you were looking for another English word to translate it, the best English word would be praise. He's commanding his soul to praise the Lord. Now, why would David do that? Why would he commit? He he doesn't just speak to his soul about praising the Lord. He gives his soul a command. Why would he do that? Well, uh, as far as I can tell, nobody gives their soul a command unless they feel within themselves there's some kind of resistance to doing the thing that they know they should do. 
The command and the tone of the words here is that David feels within himself a backward heart with broken emotions that craves the wrong things and is often ungrateful, and he's trying to get his soul to do the right thing. And I think that alerts us to the second reason it can be so hard to thank the Lord. It's not just that we focus on all the brokenness of the world and get discouraged. The fact is, thankfulness doesn't come naturally to our fallen hearts. Uh, think back for a moment to when you were a child, right? And it, well, some of you in here, you are children, so you don't have to think back. But for some of us, we have to think back a little bit further. Think back to when you were a, a child. How often did you give thanks without being told to do so, right? As I look back on my childhood, I, I, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but there must have been thousands of times I said thank you. And I would wager that very few of those times I said thank you on my own. My recollection is that my mom was constantly beside herself trying to get my brothers and I to say thank you to someone when it was patently obvious this is the moment you should thank someone for their kindness, right? Uh, now, if you're adult, an adult, you might uh, think, well, yeah, like, I, I wasn't thankful as a kid either. That's why we have parents, right, to, to show us. that. But it's different as an adult. I say thank you all the time. And I hope you do say thank you to other people all the time and acknowledge uh, when other people are, are good to you, kind to you. But my question for you, my follow-up question for you would be, how often do you say thank you to someone else out of the sincere overflow of a thankful heart, and how often is it just politeness, right? We say thank you a lot as adults just because that's what you do in polite society, right? Your server, you're at a restaurant, the server brings you food, so you say thank you. A technician comes to your house to fix something, and it's kind of their job to fix it, and they're going to get paid to fix it, but you say thank you for them coming out and working on it, right? Often as adults, we say thank you to other people, but it's just because that's what you do in polite society. And if the fact is that it didn't come naturally for us as children, and even as adults, most of the time, we're just being polite. And that's just with other people. That's not with the Lord. If that's the way it works with us, I think that points in the direction of our souls, it not being natural for our souls to thank the Lord. And I think David's words and the command he gives his soul fits with that observation. He feels the need to command his cold, thankless soul to praise the Lord. And notice verse 1, that he adds, and all that is within me, all of my faculties, all of my heart, all of my soul and mind and strength, bless the Lord. And then verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Now David is getting more specific. He's commanding his soul to list every benefit received by being connected to the Lord, to catalog, if you will, every mercy and grace and forgiveness and provision and protection that the Lord has brought into our lives, the wisdom uh, that His truth brings to us, the freedoms from sin that His grace has given us, all the family benefits we receive by being adopted into His family as sons or daughters. This is why Matt Redman titled his song, 10,000 Reasons. This is why he put the lyric in there about there's 10,000 reasons or benefits for my heart to find. There's 10,000 benefits and more for God's children to catalog. And David goes on to list just a few of them, starting in verse 3. 
He pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. In other words, He forgives our iniquities and the objective guilt that we incur because of them. And then in the second line, this is Hebrew poetry, there's parallelism going on. And so we need to talk for a moment about these diseases. These diseases are in parallel to God uh, pardoning all our iniquities. So whatever these diseases are, they need to all be healed, and whatever they are, they're somehow connected to iniquities. If you study this Hebrew word, this word for diseases means deadly terminal diseases. And in other parts of the Old Testament, this word is used metaphorically to speak about our sin as a disease of the soul, to, to portray our sin like a leprosy that separates us and alienates us from God and from other people, to portray our sin as a disease like a terminal cancer that kills us from within. Yes, it's true, God heals many of our physical injuries and many of our physical sicknesses, and I suppose you could say one day He'll heal all of them in the resurrection, right, in the next life, but He doesn't heal all our diseases in this life, right? The diseases spoken here has to be parallel with iniquities, and indeed it is. Uh, this is why we call Jesus the great physician of the soul. He heals the disease of our sin by paying the price so that our iniquities can be pardoned. The Lord also, verse 4, redeems your life from the pit. The pit is used interchangeably in the Old Testament at, for Sheol, the place of the dead. And so this is about the redemption of our souls. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Paul said that uh, to die is gain for the Christian because we, we're not just entombed in some grave, our souls go to be with the Lord. Uh, the dead in Christ will also be raised. So this isn't just about our soul being saved from the pit. This does actually also include our bodies. We know that uh, one day Christ will raise all who have died and give uh, those who are in Christ new resurrection bodies that will never age or get sick or die again, bodies that are immortal and incorruptible. Your current body, bad news, will die, uh, but your eternal fate is not being entombed in a grave. Uh, it is uh, not uh, going into some kind of eternal forever sleep. It's also not being a disembodied soul that, I, I guess, floats around somewhere in heaven. That's not it. You will receive a new body. In other words, the pit, the grave, is not your end. And while we wait for completely purified souls and the new bodies of the resurrection, we are crowned, into verse 4, with the Lord's loving kindness and compassion. The, the word that we translate as loving kindness is chesed in Hebrew. It communicates God's committed, unbroken, permanent, loyal, steadfast, forever love for us. Uh, it is the love, in fact, it, this actual word, but from a verse in Jeremiah, is what inspired the hymn writer George Matheson after going blind and losing the love of his life as a young man to write the hymn, O love that will not let me go. And the love he meant was the Hesed love uh, in Hebrew that he found in Jeremiah. That's what inspired that hymn of 
praise. And so, this permanent love of God that won't give up on His people and won't let them go, that describes the relationship that we have because of His love, but the compassion describes the action of the relationship. There is an emotional side to God's love for us, and I mean that in a good way, and that's also an understatement to say that, right? All of His emotion and wisdom is involved so that He intervenes to crown us with heavenly benefits, the majority of which we still haven't experienced. We look forward to them in the life to come. These are the promises then, in verse 4, of God's unbroken love for us and the fruit of His love shown to us in His compassion towards us. Verse 5, He also satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Every good earthly gift that we enjoy ultimately comes to us from God. We enjoy spiritual renewal now that we never could have achieved or earned on our own, and in the life to come, there is an eternal youth that we will enjoy. Now, I believe these first five verses are just an introduction by David to the rest of the psalm. I think that in these first five verses, what he's doing is introducing us to three categories of benefits that he's then going to elaborate on in the middle of the psalm. And those three categories are redemption, forgiveness, and satisfaction. Let's look at each of them. Uh, In fact, let's start with the benefit of redemption in verses 6 through 8. I'll read them again. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. So, God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and then from all the difficulties that faced them on the road to Canaan, but He does more than bring physical freedom to the oppressed. He brings about a redemption from our slavery to sin and also from the penalty that our sins deserve. This is what His compassion and grace and patience and committed love, verse 8, produce for His people. They work together to produce a situation in which He will not strive for us forever. That Hebrew word for strive, it had a technical usage to it. It was used technically in the Hebrew language to speak about bringing an accusation, an official accusation against someone in a court of law. And so the idea is this, God won't go on accusing us forever even though His accusations are true. He won't perpetually find fault with us, even though we are at fault. He won't keep His anger forever. How does that work? God is appropriately, justly angry at sin. He should be angry, and He should stay angry. So, how is it that He doesn't stay angry with us forever? Well, this, once again, is the riddle of the Old Testament. And I've preached on it like four times in the last year, and if I do it again, I'm going to get accused of it being one of my soapboxes, so I've got to be careful. I won't, I won't go back to Exodus and Isaiah 53 and explain the whole thing again because I've done it like four times recently, but let me just say this. Let me use an illustration to explain it once again, but from a different angle, okay? This issue, this riddle 
of God, like God should be angry at sin. That's part of His justice. But how is it that He, uh, that legitimate sinners, He should be angry at? He, there's some situation in which He's no longer angry with them. He no longer accuses them, even though His accusations are right. Well, this is the riddle of the Old Testament, and this is a riddle that almost drove Martin Luther insane as an Augustinian monk. He kept beating his head on Romans 1, 16 and 17, where the Apostle Paul says this, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it,' that is, in in this salvation, "'the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it's written by Habakkuk, but the righteous man shall live by faith.'" So the apostle is speaking of salvation by faith, and the only category Martin Luther had for God's righteousness was the righteousness with which God condemns people who've broken His law. His Roman Catholicism gave him no category for God being righteous to declare guilty sinners righteous not because they are, but because someone else has paid the penalty for their sins. A perfect once-for-all sacrifice has already been paid. The penalty has already been paid so that the just accusations of God have been satisfied. That's why God doesn't go on accusing us forever. It's not because He drops the charges. It's because of His forever love that caused Him to send His Son to pay the penalty and satisfy His just anger. So, what, the, what Christ did on the cross, it redeems us, it purchases, purchases us back from God justly accusing us and being angry at us forever. The second category of benefit we enjoy comes to us by way of forgiveness. Look at verses 10 through 14. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust." All those who truly fear the Lord are burdened with an objective, uh, with the objective guilt that our rebellion and that our transgressions have produced. But God removes that objective guilt as far as the east is from the west, as far as the sunset from the sunrise. And not only that, His loving kindness towards us towers over us as high as the heavens are above the earth. What does that mean? Well, science keeps looking out deeper and deeper and deeper into the cosmos uh, with new and different and more powerful telescopes, and the further we look, the further it keeps on going. It has… we haven't been able to find a limit. We haven't been able to find an end to it. And that becomes a picture of God's loving kindness towards us. God's forever love knows no boundaries. It has no end point. Uh, He has set it on those who fear Him, and they will enjoy His love unendingly into the future. And just as a good father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. He knows our physical and moral weaknesses. While not dropping His just charges against us, He still has compassion on us because He loves us and pities the spiritually foolish 
and dangerous and destructive and self-defeating things we do. And so what these verses then are picturing, 10 through 14, they're picturing forgiveness being like a relief when you're burdened, right? Sort of like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress who walks around with a burden on his back. And they're also picturing forgiveness being like this beautiful, rec- uh, uh, this beautiful reconciliation, you know, in a Hallmark movie uh, when you've wronged somebody else, this beautiful reconciliation with God. And, and we need to say it this way, even now, as sons and daughters reconciled to God through Christ, we still have sins, but God doesn't treat us according to our sins. Our sins are many, but His judgments are few. Our sins are heavy, but His discipline is light. Our transgressions are provocative, but His forgiveness is patient and merciful. John Calvin said it this way, He wonderfully blesses those He might justly destroy. Truly, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Forgiveness is such an important benefit because without it, we couldn't enjoy any of the other benefits of God. The third category of benefits uh, of God is satisfaction. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the hot wind passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. Because we're mortal, we're aware that these bodies and this life is temporary, it's fleeting, but God gives those who fear Him and desire to keep His commandments the satisfaction of being loved by Him with an eternal love, a forever hesed love that is from everlasting to everlasting. What does that mean? Well, as far back as you go into eternity past, God loved you. If you're in Christ, His love didn't, uh, His love for you didn't begin when you first believed. Uh, His love for you began before the world was even creating, created, and also His love for you will go into eternity future. What this is pointing forward to, I believe on David's part, is what the New Testament elaborates on and discusses when it explains God's electing love. God, said, God set His love on you before the foundations of the world. He loved you in Christ before the world began, and He'll go on loving you into eternity future. God loves those who are His, and He gives them the satisfaction of His love, which is passionate and emotional in the best way, and parental and protective and constant and vast. In light of all these benefits then, David turns to all of creation and now commands creation to praise the Lord. Look at verses 19 through 22. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul." So now David calls on the angels and all of creation to praise the Lord. The host that he's speaking of in verse 21, host is difficult. In order to figure out 
who exactly are these hosts, you have to cross-reference to other Old Testament passages that speak of the Lord's hosts, but then go on to list what they are. And if you cross-reference this to other passages, what you find is that the hosts are the sun and the moon and the stars, the, the heavenly bodies. And so David is calling on angels and the cosmos. He's calling on all intelligent creatures as well as the creation to praise the Lord. And I believe that gives this, uh, this psalm a powerful finale. It starts with the pianissimo of one man trying to coax his backward, lukewarm, cold heart to praise the Lord. But then it builds as he talks about the benefits of the Lord until the psalmist is now no longer looking inward, but looking outward, calling on all of creation to praise the Lord. It ends in this fortissimo, if you will, of David calling on all creation to praise the Lord. And you get this amazing crescendo. And then I think, in terms of the poetry of it, you get this amazing crescendo. And then I think just a moment of silence. And then quietly, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's how he ends. And I think that's David's way of quietly saying, and let it begin with me. Let it begin with my soul. Lord, your will be done in my heart and my life as it's already done in heaven. Change all that is oh so wrong in this world starting with me. It needs to start with my soul praising the Lord. That's what I think David is doing. I don't think he's just bookending it. I think that's in the flow of the psalm what the intention is. Oh, my soul, these are just a few of the benefits of the Lord. The Lord has crowned you with His forever love. Don't you forget it. I think that's the exhortation of uh, verse 2. Don't forget these benefits. The Puritan uh, Matthew Henry was right uh, when he said, be not afraid of saying too much in the praises of God, all the danger is of saying too little. Well, we have Thanksgiving coming, uh, I think in a week and a half here. It's a wonderful time of year to enumerate the benefits that you've received from God's goodness. And as you do so, I want to encourage you that you don't have to do so with your eyes closed to all that is broken and hard. In fact, what you do is you open your eyes to all the benefits God gives, benefits that according to verse 2, our souls tend to forget or take for granted or not value the way that we ought. Psalm 103 is my favorite psalm of thanksgiving. That's why I chose to, to preach it this week. I hope it's encouraged you. It's been inspiring Protestant Christians to write poetry and praise for almost 500 years now. And I want to close with a poem inspired by Psalm 103 that Isaac Watts wrote back in the 1700s. Bless, O my soul, the living God. Call home thy thoughts that rove abroad. Let all the powers within me join in work and worship so divine. Bless, O my soul, the God of grace. His favors claim thy highest praise. Why should the wonders he hath wrought be lost in silence and forgot. Tis he, my soul, that sent his Son to die for crimes which thou hast done. He owns the ransom and forgives the hourly follies of our lives. The vices of the mind he heals and cures the pains that nature feels, redeems the soul from hell and saves our wasting life from threatening graves. Our youth decayed, his power repairs. 
His mercy crowns our growing years. He satisfies our mouth with good and fills our hopes with heavenly food. The Lord, how wondrous are His ways, how firm His truth, how large His grace. He takes His mercy for His throne, and thence He makes His glories known. Not half so high His power hath spread, the starry heavens above our head. As His rich love exceeds our praise, exceeds the highest hopes we raise. Not half so far hath nature placed the rising rising morning from the west, as His forgiving grace removes the daily guilt of those He loves. How slowly doth His wrath arise, on swifter wings salvation flies, and if He lets His anger burn, how soon His frowns to pity turn. Amidst His wrath compassion shines, His strokes are lighter than our sins, and while His rod corrects His saints, His ear indulges their complaints. So fathers their young sons chastise with gentle hand and melting eyes. The children weep beneath the smart and move the pity of their heart. The mighty God, the wise and just, knows that our frame is feeble dust and will no heavy loads impose beyond the strength that He bestows. He knows how soon our nature dies, blasted by every wind that flies, like grass we spring and die as soon as morning flowers that fade at noon. But His eternal love is sure to all the saints and shall endure. From age to age His truth shall reign, nor children's children hope in vain. Let's pray. 